Benjamins, baby. Uh huh, yeah. Well, not quite. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where the intersection of finance, technology, and policy come together. And I'm your host, Chris Brummer. The future of finance is now. China recently sent shockwaves through both the crypto and international monetary communities with its announcement that the country's central bank would soon introduce its own digital version of its currency, the yuan. For some, the announcement amounts to an unprecedented attempt by a major economy to internationalize its currency and take a step towards the currency becoming a rival to the U.S. dollar. For others, it represents a pure power play and the possibility of a new and ominous extension of state authority over its citizens. With so much to debate, I want to hear from some of the world's top experts on the issue and stop by the IMF to talk with John Kiff and Sonia Davidovich. John is a senior financial expert at the IMF, and Sonia is the knowledge products lead and digital advisor at the fund. Sonia, John, thanks so much for being back on the show. Thanks for having us on. Thank you, Chris. Always a pleasure. Okay, John, I'll start with you. China is announcing a new digital currency. Qu'est-ce que c'est? What exactly are they planning to do? Well, first of all, I should tell you that there's a lot we don't know about this. Everything we hear about this comes from scattered reports in, in newspapers and blogs and so on. And actually, the thing's been percolating along for for some time um maybe up to four or five years or so and and so wow that's that that is a lot longer than i thought for four or five years that means they've strategically been thinking about its its use case and use value politically and economically for for quite a bit and their main use case i think well there's probably a number of them but one, one of them would be um um inclusion, financial inclusion. China's a big country, and it's got uh, people in the scattered areas where perhaps they're not well served by banks and so on. So that would probably be a primary primary motivation for the, the People's Bank of China, which is actually leading this effort. I think there, there's some concern about the, um, what we call a payment system monopoly um, distortions, and they've got Alipay and WeChat Pay that now um, are responsible for something like 80 or 90 percent of all transactions. You can't go anywhere in China and do any kind of business unless you have a WeChat Pay or an Alipay uh, account. I, I found out that out personally. I was there in January and uh, tried to try to have a restaurant meal, and I thought, okay, I got my my, my wand and my wallet here. Uh, let's 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 uh, let's have some chow. But <laughs> no way, they wouldn't. T- the, the the restaurant will not touch cash. You have. That's to. interesting. So okay, so so as a result, the the, the idea would be well, the People's Bank of China um, uh, is thinking about this in an increasingly cashless society. How do we break this hold by these new kinds of payment uh, providers? That's right. And uh, so, the, you know, people like to put all kinds of nefarious reasons around, around the introduction of, of this new digital currency. But I think primarily from what we, we know, um, there, it's the same thing that's motivating central bank digital currencies in other countries, too. Canada um, has similar considerations, maybe not so much financial inclusion, although, believe it or not, they have concerns about people being banked in some of the further out parts of that large country, too. So, so, Sonia, is, is that your sense as well? I mean, first of all, there are lots of different kinds of models for central bank digital currencies. I mean, you could have a kind of a wholesale model or a retail model, which would allow anyone to use and 
sometimes models that only use certain kinds of privileged intermediaries. Do you, do you have a, either a sense as to what uh, the, uh, China may be planning, and, and what are you gathering from the project thus far? So from what we know thus far, it's supposed to be a two-tier model where the central bank digital currency will be um, issued to the four st state-owned banks and payment platforms, and from there it will be distributed by those entities to the end consumers who can then engage in peer-to-peer -peer transactions. So it's a little bit of a different approach where, but I think reasonable because there has to be some role for financial institutions and the payment platforms to play as they're well ingrained into the current um, payment infrastructure. So I think that's a reasonable approach to take, at least at the very, at the onset of the project. And later on, we'll see if that evolves over time. So one of the very interesting developments is that any time in which you introduce a central bank digital currency, there's always this question about, well, what, do you, what happens to the legacy financial infrastructure providers, right? I mean, whether or not it be banks or payment systems. Um, on the one hand, this may be an attempt to break that monopoly, but at the same time, if Alipay is still operating at a wholesale level to distribute this new digital currency, it's, it's, it's not planning to necessarily wipe them out. It's just more or less making sure that there's a certain order of primacy in the uh, monetary system where the payment system providers are themselves not somehow uh, sort of jumping up or taking the place of uh, the government. Is, is that a, a good characterization? I mean, it, to the extent to which they are preserving uh, a very essential role for the distribution of digital currency? I think it's, um, it's a good way to start off um, because I think one of the concerns that still is out there is the financial um, disintermediation like what happens exactly what you just what you just raised? What happens to the incumbents, the banks, and the payment platforms? What happens to them? Do they have a role to play? And I think China has actually assigned them a role. They will keep the distribution open, only that they will now be distributing the central bank digital currency, and their reserves will be at the at the PBOC, which I think is also interesting because that allows the central bank to fold them into the supervisory. Um, under the supervisory umbrella so that, you know, they can monitor if there's any illicit financial transactions, anything that pertains to financial integrity concerns can be better um, monitored if the reserves, the underlying reserves are at the, in the central bank. So more than a couple of people have observed that whenever you use any cryptocurrency, the ability to observe things also um, empowers governments to operationalize more uh, surveillance uh, of, of all of the users. And that when you look at the irony of, of cash is that it really is anonymous and some of the new cryptocurrencies have a little bit more traceability when it comes to how those assets are, are, are used. Uh, John, when you talk to other central banks and uh, central bankers who are thinking through the deployment of a central bank digital currency, how does that data issue pop up, and to what degree does the ability to survey the users of a cryptocurrency inform, if not China, at least how other international organizations and central banks and just technocrats view this particular process? 
Let me start with a, maybe a little bit of breaking news here. I don't know if you know you saw this, but uh, late last week, um, the PBOC's Mr. Mu, he's the head of their digital currency unit, introduced this concept of controllable anonymity, um, and that sparked all kinds of interest and <laughs> debate out there. What does that really mean? And I think I think like, that, is it an oxymoron? Or well, then again, this is an example of of how we find out about what's actually happened in 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 China because it's he. he it's a speech, and Reuters reports a few little tidbits, so controllable anonymity, and, and he says that uh, um, it'll be anonymous, but we have to be we have to respect financial integrity um, requirements, anti-money laundering and um, counter countering financing of terrorism, and so on. Those rules have to be respected. So he introduced this term called controllable anonymity. Now, of course. Um, the way almost all of these, I think almost all of these uh, central bank digital currencies will work is to, so you have to sign up and get a wallet. At that point, you can get the complete know your customer or KYC treatment. And so they know who's got the wallets. Now the next uh, an, um, anonymity question you have to ask is, okay, now are, do I have to now have all my, tra are my transactions all going to be tracked down to the personal level? And that's where this controllable anonymity apparently comes in, that um, yes, you'll have your full KYC at the wallet stage, but you'll somehow be able to control the privacy um, settings on, on transactions. It, it sounds a bit too good to be true that uh, the individual users can to do that can do this, but that's that's a term that uh, Mr. Mu introduced. But another, we we also have um, an advantage of having seen a pilot um, done in Ecuador of a central bank digital currency, and they had another way of dealing with the privacy issue. So in that case, uh, the, uh, like uh, every every other instance, there has to be this full KYC at the beginning, but the transaction um, data is all kept in an encrypted. Um, encrypted file that can only be opened up and matched up with this KYC file um, if there's probable cause. So the, the government would actually have to go and get a court order to um, unlock them. So that's I think And that's really interesting because in every country, what probable cause as a legal matter is going to differ pretty dramatically, um, whether or not you, you need it, say, in the United States. And, and it's fascinating because the U.S., we're working through the exact same series of questions of how much data is could be accessible by an infrastructure provider and under what circumstances could a regulator go through the back door to get certain kinds of transaction data. And, you know, with different legal systems, it, it, the, 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 the degree to which you can ultimately secure both I, that term is very fascinating. Like the controllable anonymity again. Controlled anonymity. Controlled anonymity. You know. Controlled by the user, not by the government. Oh well, that's also very useful. To yeah, me. that's right. the implication that it's it's the control. The control is by the user. But is by the user. So so Sonia, I mean, how difficult is it then uh, to be able to create a system that really is capable of protecting privacy? It depends who you ask. If you ask the cybersecurity or data privacy experts there, who technologists on the technologist side, they will tell you, forget about data privacy altogether. Because even if it's completely, if it's built, the product, the CBDC is built completely anonymous, you can de-anonymize it at any time in the process based on the data that you collect on its usage. So let's say I take... So the metadata. Exactly, the metadata, right. So you, uh, let's say I take, uh, pay for my Uber or Lyft ride every morning 
from uh, home to work and you collect that data on how I use that CBDC and you can build a profile on me and figure out my identity using that data. So you would have to strictly separate the, the data from the metadata and have separate entities um, own it, so to speak, to be able to achieve some level of privacy, but that is extremely difficult. So it basically works a lot like a web browser, that you can you can get metadata and sort of work backwards to find out exactly, exactly. Who, the, who, the, who, who the user and is. At some point, you'll figure out, it's me, Sonia. <laughs> this kind of reminds me, though, of the, this. Uh, this uh, it's, it's a misconception, I think, that people using WhatsApp, I mean, they use WhatsApp as a messenger instead of Facebook Messenger. They like WhatsApp because it's got end-to-end -end encryption. What they don't realize is Facebook collects, collects the metadata from those conversations, so they don't know who's talking to who and when and who and where the locations too. So they can put they they can put two and two together quite nicely. And what's and, and that's kind of scary. It's scary, yeah. It is. So, what is privacy? <laughs> so, uh, the the same development uh, is, has sparked larger conversations. Um, uh, one of the Previous guests on the show, uh, former CFTC chairman Chris Giancarlo, along with Dan Gorfine, who was the head of Lab CFTC, had written an op-ed a couple of weeks ago in the Wall Street Journal saying that the United States should turn to digitize the U.S. dollar because other well, there uh, other large powers, both private and public, are considering either it's a CBDC, a central uh, bank digital currency or uh, another company will try something like Facebook's Libra, and if the U.S. dollar wants to maintain its sort of competitive position, it needs to upgrade its own uh, electronic infrastructure. Um, Sonia, when you think about the fact that uh, China has been looking to internationalize its currency as well for, for years, um, at least since 2004, really, um, when, when you're looking at this from the perspective of, of, of your perch here, where you're able to compare and contrast uh, different kinds of uh, digital currency exploits by, by governments, does digitization improve the ability to internationalize uh, China's currency? Is this, is this uh, something that, that could really be, um, if not a threat, at least, something that other major international currencies have to keep in mind when they think about their own strategic monetary posture? I, I think it can certainly help, and there's been efforts on part of China to promote the interna internationalization of the renminbi or the, the yuan through the inclusion of it uh, the yuan into the SDR basket and so on, but I think in terms of like digital payment systems, it's important to keep in mind that interoperability plays a critical role there. So how, how does this currency interoperate with other um, payment infrastructure, like other digital currencies? I think that is an important consideration when thinking about internationalizing it, because if it's used within China or in the region, that's great. But if you want to expand the scope beyond, it needs to be working with other systems. And then this is where the added difficulty comes in when you have, because as you know, you will then cross jurisdictions. So then the question becomes, which data privacy laws apply, which financial integrity standards. And so there are all these unresolved questions when it comes to internationalization. It's not just um, one single means that will boost it, boost it 
international usage of the of, of the of the UN. There's like many many more considerations that need to be taken into account when thinking about it. One way in which you could look at this is that China certainly has been involved in internationalizing its currency since really 2004 when it started to uh, set up bank accounts in Hong Kong. And that internationalization process has evolved into a range of things like allowing foreigners to invest in China's stock markets and, and vice versa, allowing more Chinese uh, uh, folks on, in the mainland to invest in uh, uh, international stocks. Um, but this is a little bit different because it goes to the heart of transforming the very tr functionality of its of its money. Um, John, when, when you think about the different uh, cases, and, and last time we were here, you had already said, hey, look, you know, a surprising number of governments have already begun to operationalize, if incrementally, a CBDC. Have you seen on the ground uh, instances where digitizing a currency increased its popularity and uptake and usefulness um, either within uh, a, a country domestically or across, on a cross-border basis? Well, we do know from the Uruguay pilot, that's the only, that's the only concrete evidence we have right now. Um, it was a very successful rollout. They did it for six months, and, and, uh, and it, was, uh, it was very, very popular amongst uh, people. The merchants were a bit slow on the uptake, and so were the banks, but eventually the banks um, saw the light, too. And I think, as uh, Sonia was mentioning earlier, um, it's, it's, it's good if you can involve the banks, because there's always this fear that introduction of a central bank digital currency will disintermediate banks, they'll basically, it'll suck deposits out of the banks and, and undermine their, their lending function and so on. It would on. suck deposits because presumably people would no longer put their money in a bank, but instead they'd put it with the central yeah. bank. That's why, you know, this is a conversation for another day, but in design, and when you're designing CBDC, you might, you, some are talking about having, making them interest barren, and if you, how you calibrate that interest rate could obviously have a big effect on the degree of competitiveness with deposits. But one thing I want to return to is the, 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 the cross-border aspect. First of all, um, we monitor um, a lot of different initiatives out there, and very few, if any, are talking about introducing, at least immediately, cross-border functionality. And I'm, I'm a little skeptical about that rationale in the China case, at least from the initial things we're hearing again through the press, third party, and so on, that um, theirs is going to be what they call an account-based system. So it's just kind of like opening up a bank account at a bank. Instead, you're opening an account with the central bank. And that would m make it really difficult to be interoperable cross-border. And they've already come out. It, it, it would or it would it not? Would, it would make it very difficult. I mean, the way to do it, if they were really in seriously interested in making this a cross-border digital currency, um, they would probably make it based on blockchain. But they've come out. That's one of the rare instances where they've come out and said, this is not going to be blockchain-based, because that solves your interoperability problem right away. Um, so I, I think, and when you hear other governments, like the U.S. government talking about, or, or people within the country talking about um, setting up a Fed coin or something would be, that would be competitive with a, with a cross-border um, Chinese currency or, or whatever, you'd have to probably think seriously about making a blockchain-based one, because making these things interoperable would be really difficult. There's, there's so many different models being looked at out there that uh, I don't see. I mean, I, I think it's a great idea if you could have a kind of standardization. So down the road, um, we like to call it future-proofing the currency that you can uh, 
you can interoperate with other ones. To future-proof your currency. I really like that. That's yeah. an interesting concept. I mean, one, uh, returning then to this Belt and Road Initiative, you know, there is some question with trade wars and with uh, uh, attempts to sort of uh, create a, a unified or more efficient, at least, trading environment for China as a response in part to uh, trade concerns uh, here in the United States is that, well, maybe it's trying to build out not just its own sort of trade system or trade ecosystem, but, but it could also consider building out its own financial ecosystem, particularly since when you look at the earlier stage of the Renminbi internationalization, they, they created these so-called clearing banks in different parts of the world to create, you know, Renminbi financial centers, you know, and there's just, I, I think, a holdover question, set of questions as to, well, how hard would it be to pivot from that initial level of what is really interesting, John is mentioning, as sort of a limited, if, if not no internationalization, sort of a domestic model, right, to then pivot to some kind of blockchain-based uh, deployment. You know, uh, Sonia, do you have any, 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 any ideas as to how hard that kind of pivot would be, uh, or is it important at T1, as John says, to future-proof uh, the layout or the rollout of your new payment system in order to, uh, to, to be able to move internationally, if that is a goal? I think that's an excellent question and something that we touch upon in the paper we're currently writing on how to operationalize a central bank digital currency. It's very important to build the design flexibility from the very get-go, like to have that as a, like, the flexibility built into the product from the very beginning so that you kind of preempt expensive reworks or having to adjust or pivot to the cross-border aspect later, later on. I mean, if you design it flexibly enough in the beginning and you leave a door open to enable interoperability with other systems or um, allow for cross-border component, that's gonna, that's gonna be very helpful and later, you know, just opening up the feature, that feature should there be a decision to expand beyond the domestic, um, the domestic sort of territory. And that's, that's something that we really highlight in the paper, paper as a key design consideration because a lot of people don't necessarily think about that regulation might change, uh, your policy objectives might change, um, cybersecurity might change. There's so many moving parts to this, and I think that leaving that flexibility in, building it into the product, will, um, will be helpful in, in realizing that later down the road. You know, w that observation is, is a fantastic one, and it reminds me a lot, frankly, of the kinds of conversations that U.S. regulators have with Silicon Valley, that when you're building that product, you know, think and think about, number one, uh, the regulatory ecosystem in which it's likely going to uh, operate, but also think about the future and try to build in some kind of design uh, flexibility so that whatever you're building can adapt to those changed circumstances, whether or not they just they be economic or, or regulatory. And if you have a central bank digital currency, it's inherently economic. Oh, excuse me. Um, uh, it, and if you have a central bank digital currency, it's effectively cross-border, ultimately, if you're looking to have a wider set of, of, of users. Sonia, John, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Uh, this is going to be very interesting to see how it plays out, and we look forward to talking to you again. Thanks, You're Chris. welcome. Thank you. 
it's not hard to see why China's introduction of a digital red pack has stirred up the international monetary system. Not only could it increase the number of people using the renminbi, but it could also increase the currency's very utility and functionality. But context matters, and cryptocurrencies, despite their reputation for anonymity, aren't the blank slate people think, and could very well be used to enable all kinds of things, including access to user data and information. This makes its deployment more than just a technocratic one domestically, and perhaps a national security issue abroad. My hunches were bound to see a reaction somewhere, from someone, and the IMF will be right in the middle of the action. I'm Chris Brummer. Thanks for listening. We want to hear from you. Feel free to email us at fintechbeat at cqrollcall.com or tweet to at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. Join us next time on Fintech Beat, produced by CQ Roll Call.